That's fantastic. I had so many questions for you. Uh, I have this many questions, plus ones that pop in my head. Don't worry, you don't have to answer them all. I'm happy to. Uh, but, so. but with that, I watched the RNC convention. Mm -hmm. I watched your speech at the RNC convention. Uh, RNC, and then also I watched CNN the next day. <laughs> I just wanted to see what they had to say. It was the continuation it, of the Democrat convention on it, CNN. It, it <laughs> was, no and, and I just was, so they, they had some things to say about you, uh, uh, but they, which was no surprise, <laughs> uh, but how, this is hilarious, all right? I, I, I wanna get to this. Okay. So during their coverage of the RNC, CNN host Chris Como stated, that protesting and church attendance have nothing to do with each other, and protests are people who are responding in this country to outrageous acts of social injustice. Mm -hmm. To say, well, it's the same as going to church, no it isn't. And that you would have chaos if you told people they couldn't protest. I'm looking, it looks like we got chaos. Well, look, I mean, I try not to look at anything Chris Cuomo says. It makes me a happier person. Um, so... If usually people are telling me what he's saying. But look, I mean, this is a really interesting conversation we have to have as a country, which is what do we value and what is essential? And my goodness, has, and first of all, I want to compliment you, Pastor, and your church for being open and staying open. That takes courage and conviction. You deserve to be complimented for that. But God bless you for that. You deserve credit for that. Because you are the exception, not the norm. I'm traveling the country. Pastor Rob McCoy, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Pastor Cody in Grand Rapids, Pastor Ken Graves in Maine. I've spoken to all their churches the last month. I am traveling the country, speaking in any church that is open, and trying to spread the message, say, stay open, don't let these tyrants close you down, do not allow this, stand, this double standard to be enforced, because it's so important. And so, we as Christians are decent and reasonable people, and that's a good thing, we should be. However, we should not allow tyranny to exist. We should not allow, also, the false application of standards to exist, which is very dangerous, which is what we've allowed to happen in these last couple months, where just this last weekend in Washington, D.C., they have 55,000 people right next to each other protesting. Mm -hmm. Yet you cannot have more than 50 people in a church a block away from there. Mm -hmm. And so what they're really saying is if you are saying the right things, you're allowed to have as many people as you want to. But saying Jesus Christ is Savior of the world, saying that Jesus Christ is King, saying that God is real, that's not the right things to them. So it really, this is very much bias selection, basically. If you, do, if you fit a specific type of dogma, that fits their narrative, then you can have as big of a gathering as you want and you will not be enforced. However, if you gather and assemble as people of God or as believers, all of a sudden they're able to use any sort of means necessary to shut you down, to intimidate you, and to silence you. All the while, cannabis dispensaries remain open, abortion factories remain open, drug stores and liquor stores remain open, Lowe's and Home Depot remain open, yet people cannot assemble to be able to worship their God, be able to worship Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And this is not a victimless crime. Suicides are on the way up, depression's on the way up, alcoholism, drug usage, domestic and sexual abuse. People are yearning more than ever before for a great awakening. The problem is you cannot have a fifth great awakening if the church is not open. The church is more than just a live stream. Mm -hmm. We've had four great awakenings in this country and all four have prevented us from going towards tyranny. One actually led to the founding of our country. The other one prevented us from breaking early on in the 1790s, early 1800s. The other during the late 19, uh, 1900, early 1900s, late 1800s, and the fourth by Billy Graham in the 60s and 70s. Every great awakening had something very obvious, was the capacity for, as Jesus Christ said, on my rock I'll build this church. Ecclesia, the gathering of believers. When you're nothing more than a YouTube live stream, you are basically surrendering to the secular leftists and saying, you know what, what we have here doesn't matter, we're just going to become a TED talk between 10 to 11.30 Eastern. We as Christians cannot tolerate this to ever happen again, continue to gather and continue to assemble. Amen. Amen.
Amen. So I have a feeling that's going to happen a lot this evening. So, uh, so with that, when I look at church and being friends with Jack and, and uh, Tim Thompson and some others, James Cadiz, and, and looking at it, when I reason through the reason why we opened when we did and just being shut for a few weeks was when I, you look at the church, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, uh, do not forsake the assembling together, which is what you were Amen. just talking about. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So the thought in my mind as a pastor and looking at prophetic things, because that's kind of what I do. Uh, when I look at that, it appears to me we are watching the day approaching. That is a commandment probably today for today more than any other time. And the church is not like I, I, I was told constantly, Charlie, help me work through this, that it's okay to be a church at YouTube, your own, your own biological earthly family at home. But that's not what the church is. No. The church is a spiritual body getting together, a body of believers, as you mentioned, isn't it? So and, the YouTube... And, and the scriptures say, when two or more are gathered in my name, it says very clearly. And also, let's just talk a very technical reason here. Tonight, somebody is going to be able to find some fulfillment in the ecclesia, the gathering of believers. Somebody in this room is going to talk to somebody else and they're going to say, how are you doing? And some of them might say, I'm not doing great, and here's why. And you know why? Because church exists, some of them say, how can I help you? When it's nothing more than a YouTube live stream, that kind of fellowship, that kind of social safety net, that kind of friends looking out for friends disappears and evaporates altogether. Guess what? You need that more than ever when you have 30 million people out of work, when you're in the midst of a crisis. You need Christians supporting other believers. And when you just say that is irrelevant, basically what you are doing, which a lot of these very weak pastors are doing, and I think they should all resign if they don't open their churches immediately. All of them is they're basically saying, I could say that, you could smile, no, because I've, I've, I've I, I, it's as clear as I could possibly make it, because it's outrageous, is basically what they are saying is that the church is nothing more than a 90-minute message, and all of the other components of the church, the gathering, the counseling, the shepherding, the answers, the questioning, can be fulfilled by the state or by government. Make no mistake, this has been a diabolical multi-decade campaign to shut down the church. They've wanted this for a very long time. They're getting closer than ever to succeed. And what's been very disappointing for me as a believer who's in politics and as someone who fights this every single day is how complicit and willing the church has been to go along with this. Yeah. It has been frustrating beyond I could possibly put into words of how these pastors have abdicated their, their quite honestly, the commission. I don't use that word lightly. It's a very, very weighted word for pastors. That commission to shepherd their flock correctly in a time of crisis. And I can tell you this. I run a podcast, I do two podcasts a day, one on the weekend, we do more podcasting than any other Christian conservative team out there, and I get thousands of emails from young people that are saying, Charlie, because of you, I want to go back to church, but I can't. And for the pastors out there that keep your doors closed, there's a young person that might not have committed suicide if you would have opened your church. There's a young person that could have found the teachings of Jesus Christ if you would open your church. I'll say one other thought on this. They took the holiest day of the calendar away from us. They took Easter Sunday. And many pastors were okay with that. And we should think to ourselves, how many people could have been in the kingdom of God? How many people could have found Jesus Christ if we would have had the boldness and the conviction to open up our churches during that entire season? And I get it early on. We didn't know what we were dealing with. I understand closing for a couple weeks because based on all the experts and the prognosticators, we were dealing with something that very well could have wiped out our entire species based on how alarmist it was. But God tells us very clearly to step with wisdom, James 1.5, ask God for wisdom for which he gives generously, and wisdom is the capacity to differentiate between foolishness and falsehoods and the correct path to move forward. We say, oh, wow, 
here's the mortality rate, here's the case rate, maybe we can open the church and continue to gather and we'll do so responsibly. And as we got more data, we realized we could gather even bigger and bigger. But this fact that the church has gone into such this dogmatic position of this, where we are going to do whatever the state, local, and federal governments say, no matter what, and it's even worse than that, it's we might not even open until January or February, what some of these churches have said, I think is a complete and total disgrace to what we are called to do as yeah. believers. Well, amen. And I... And uh, you said I'm a pastor, so I can't really laugh or agree with you, but I just did. And I, and I, and I, and, and, right. and uh, Tim Thompson, you know this well. We've talked a lot about this. To me, this is one of the most troubling things that I have seen. Uh, I, I'm still puzzled by how many. When I look at how many pastors just capitulated and still won't they open still their churches. They still are, though. It's, it's ongoing. Oh, it this is. is not a past tense thing. No, and they are talking about, you mentioned January, February. I'm hearing not even opening it up till possibly the end of 2021. I'm thinking that you're already making that decision. So where, what are you really doing as a pastor? The other thing I see, and this is what I, a conviction that I feel. When I, I know business owners, whether they own restaurants or barbershops, or spas or whatever it is that they own. These are people who are working hard, trying to make a living, they're shut down. And I feel if I can't even open as a church, when I have certain opportunities as a pastor to be able to open that they don't, they've got other issues with health departments and things like that. I feel like look, being open as a church strengthens the entire community when you do that. Of course, yes. And what's incredible is that what we're doing here tonight is actually, unlike a gym, is actually explicitly protected in the United States Constitution, where it's the free expression clause. And the fact that these little micro tyrants that run the California Department of Health think they can come in and start shutting us down, there, there's a very explicit clause that it only took us one amendment to get to it, and you could tell them to go the other direction, because we have a God-given right to be able to assemble. And I, we're going to get into this tonight, but this is such an incredible step forward for humanity, what the United States of America did, which is recognizing that our rights not are given to us by government, but by God. In fact, we created government. Government did not create us. And this seems so obvious to us, right? Like, of course. No, no, actually, most of human history didn't have it that way. Most of human history had where you were a serf that go fought other people's wars. You lived through a 32. You probably died of typhus. You might have a couple kids if you're lucky, and then your kids also fight in other people's wars, and you live an awful and miserable, brutish and short life. And then all of a sudden, the teachings of Jesus Christ spread all across the world, this idea of individual rights, the idea of your individual necessity to atone for your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And as a byproduct of that, because of the Great Awakening in the 1730s and 1740s, great questions were started to be asked. It's like, wait a second, we're depraved by nature. We're all rooted in original sin. All of us are equal in how much we need Jesus. Why are we continuing to take orders from this King George guy? And Thomas Paine says, you're right. And he wrote this amazing book called Common Sense, which really was the just the gasoline on the fire that lit the entire American Revolution, where the, fo the founders of this country learned under Whitfield, they learned under Jonathan Edwards, and they, they heard these sermons from activist pastors that built this country where they were ready to be able to rebel against tyranny for the kingdom of God, for natural rights, liberty, and for freedom. So what we're experiencing here is a very short moment in time, and we can screw it up, and we're getting close to, by the way. We are close to losing this gift. There is no guarantee that this thing is going to continue. In fact, it's actually a greater guarantee this thing's going to deteriorate if you look at just what human beings are likely to do, which is to screw up good things we have been given. Don't believe me? Read the Old Testament. It only happened about six times, right? Which is basically you create the nation of Israel, you disobey God, you get scattered, you go into wilderness, then you reassemble yourself, you build the nation of God, 
then you disobey. It's literally this endless cycle uh, mm -hmm. that kind of feels like your every day, doesn't it? Where by 9 a.m. you're already so discombobulated, and then all of a sudden this beautiful covenant, Jesus Christ comes and says, surrender yourself. You are not enough, and that's okay. I am king of the world, and accept me as your Lord and Savior. Changed everything. It is the ultimate game changer. Amen. Uh, I couldn't help but, but also... Uh, while you were talking, just thinking about some of the things that you were sharing and the reality of how close I believe we really are to losing this freedom. Uh, still, with churches shutting down, if churches capitulated that easy, um, then what about the rest of the country? And, and losing the freedoms that we have bothers me. And with this, I, I want to I define some terms because we're going to yeah, start sure. going into some go really, into dif want, so. really difficult things for people to deal with right now. Sure. Uh, you mentioned activist pastors from, uh, from centuries past. Right now, we're told, well, we can't do something like that. Uh, Rob McCoy, Jack Hibbs, Pastor Tim, James Cadiz, myself, uh, other pastors around the country that are saying, wait, no, we're going to stand up. We're going to open. We're here to preach the gospel. Amen. Don't tell us you can't sing. Uh, but with that, you can be an activist for anything else except Jesus Christ. Yes. So, so you look at this, let's define some terms so everybody understands, and people who, who might not understand yet, sure. they'll get on page and then we're going to go for it. So term uh, fascism. Sure. So fascism means bundle of sticks. It actually does. <laughs> no, if you actually look at the root term I, I, I did not know that. Yeah, no, you can look it up. So, um, <laughs> no, it does. Um, and so the actually, we get the idea, so it's really important. What's actually happening in our country by the American left is much more fascist than it is socialist. Mm -hmm. And that's a really important thing. Now, they're actually cousins to each other. They're not opposite on the political spectrum. If Whatever they teach you in school, throw that away. They're lying to you. They're not, they're not like right wing and left wing. Actually, the true political spectrum is absolute collectivist government control and respect of individual rights. That's the true spectrum. And this whole idea of right and left, and I use the left just interchangeably because it's very, we all understand what that means, but it's actually an inaccurate term if you look at an actual spectrum that is supposed to measure what is on the political uh, continuum. So what does that actually mean, fascism? It means that government does not necessarily own the means of production, but government can control the livelihoods, freedoms, capacity, and decisions of a population. And even more, so a really interesting example of this, of fascism, is exactly what is happening in this state when it comes to people of faith, if you dare disagree. A sort of soft fascism is when 71% of people in our country feel as if they are going to lose their job if they speak their mind. 71% of people believe that. That's fascism, right? So it's using your incumbent advantage to be able to terrorize the weak or the innocent or the disadvantaged to conform to your ideology. That's a fascist posture, right? It's, it's a little bit philosophically different than socialist, and I can get into the difference of that because we use these terms so often, but they're not dissimilar. They both rely on the heavy hand of government to be able to effectually effectuate social change. So a very popular example of what a fascist would look like would be Benito Mussolini, for example. Now, he's not dissimilar from Joseph Stalin, but he would nationalize the businesses to work for the benefit of the wealthy few. In a lot of ways, that is exactly what the Democrat Party is trying to do in this country, where they want Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook to work for their benefit, not necessarily to eradicate it or nationalize it, which would be more of a socialist position, but they'd want to have this incumbent advantage of a corporate class that would benefit them. And so fascism is, in some ways, not more dangerous, but it's more sneaky than socialism, because fascism is very, and this is really, what's really interesting, is we get accused of being fascist all the time, mm -hmm. which is what, it's, it's incredibly Orwellian, which it's not just a lie, it's the opposite of the truth. So let me tell you what I mean mm -hmm. by Orwellian, and I think it's really important we understand what this means. So a lie is usually one to two to five degrees away from the truth. 
Something called doublespeak, which George Orwell, an author from the 1940s, wrote the famous book 1984, An Animal Farm, he came up with this new term called doublespeak or doublethink. So here's how it works. If I come up to the pastor here and I say, Pastor, um, how many cookies have you been eating? And let's say he ate 10 cookies. He says, I ate three cookies. That would be a lie. Now, if I come up to him, I say, how many cookies have you eaten? This is how doublespeak works. How many cookies have you eaten? And he's cookies all over. He's got crumbs all over his face. He says, I haven't eaten any cookies. You did. No, no, no. You're, you're eating the cookies. I see you. No, no, no. You ate the cookies. And you're also a racist. And your country's awful. Like, no, I, I can see you eating the cookies. And have any of you felt this recently? Where you're, you're as if, you're the ones doing this. You're the ones walking around with masks and batons and hammering us over the head. You're the one that is bludgeoning us. And you're calling us fascists? And it's, it's the opposite of the truth. And there's also a term called gaslighting. I can get into gaslighting too, which is exactly what's happening in real time in our country. It's a, it's a play that would, takes place in 1880s London where a husband was manipulating his wife, where he was turning down the light every evening. And the wife said, why is it getting darker? And he said, you're losing your mind and it's not getting darker, right? Is, is that, you get that feeling every so often where you just think, see things incrementally changing and they're like, oh no, you're, you're crazy. I'm like, no, actually I can see exactly what's happening in front of us. And so that, that's the best way to defend, define fascism. Here's a really good rule, is if you have to use a blunt force object to get someone to convince you of something, you probably have a bad argument. Yeah. So <laughs> Antifa is, they go with... <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the Orwellian part of it, yeah. right? So Antifa, they call themselves anti-fascist. But it's not just a lie, it's the opposite of the truth. I mean, they are the fascists. They are the ones that are going out with, before the mask craze, they were always masks because only cowards don't want to show their true identity publicly. If you're afraid of your face being shown, then you're afraid of actually the ideas that you espouse. I think that in social media in particular, the rise of an anonymous accounts has, has really been dangerous to our social discourse and to how we actually interact with each other because if there's no accountability, people will do anything, right? It's kind of that old thing, if you had an invisibility cloak, what would you do to somebody? It's very, very dangerous from a moral perspective. And so you look at Antifa, they say, oh, we're fighting against fascism, and if you don't agree with us, we're going to bash you over the head. And so let me just give you an example, and if there's any moderates or Democrats watching this, I'm just going to walk you through this. I was in the White House uh, Thursday evening, and during the president's speech, I heard all these protesters outside, and look, I fight the left, I avoid the left, I have been threatened by the left. I have been chased off campuses off the left uh, by Antifa. I've been driven out of restaurants. I have to walk around with security. I know these people, okay? So for me, I heard the protesting outside. I was able to carefully avoid all these people. However, I knew exactly what was about to happen and what the Washington, D.C. mayor was creating, which was 4,000 armed and masked vigilantes that would collide with the biggest donors, senators, and political connected individuals of the RNC, and that's not going to end well right? And, and it didn't. People got assaulted. Senator Rand Paul got assaulted. The activist media covered almost none of it. Now, I just want you to imagine something. I saw it firsthand. I saw the mob. I saw people getting hurt. I've, this is completely as factual as it can be. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine President Barack Obama giving a dress at the White House, and 2,000 of his closest political people walk outside of the White House, and 4,000 conservatives are waiting for those people, and assault them, and scream at them in the face, and call them awful names, and harass them, and chase them through the streets. Do you think anyone would tolerate that? In fact, it would be so unspeakable in the moral conduct, right? We would all have to have this decade-long apology tour, and it would be known as the DC clash of the, you know. And yet this happened just a couple nights ago, and we just move on, and we're used to it. And I'm telling you right now, these people are trying to provoke a conflict in the streets of our country, and it's not even a double standard. That's not even fair to say. 
But just do that thought exercise. Could you imagine if we waited outside of events for Joe Biden and harassed these people and chased them home and assaulted them and threw objects at sitting U.S. senators? Instead of Senator Rand Paul, imagine if Senator Bernie Sanders was assaulted in the streets. Do you think anyone would tolerate that? In fact, it's Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the entire Democrat Party that said it's a peaceful protest outside mm -hmm. there. Again, it's not just a lie, it's the opposite of the truth. And here's the, here's, the, here's the dangerous part of this, and they know exactly what they're doing. The left is trying to provoke us so far that they want a physical response in the streets. And we're so decent and we're so reasonable, we're not giving them that. In fact, they're the ones that are burning down our entire civilization, and they're now seeing themselves suffer electorally and politically because of it. But make no mistake, Antifa is a very legitimate threat in our country. They have basically taken over the cities of Seattle and Portland. They are, they are a domestic terror organization that is the opposite of anti-fascist. They are the fascists. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, just, it's disturbing to me to watch what's happening. Um, uh, and, and I want to ask you a little bit more about the polls and what sure. you believe is really going on. I'm going to ask you in a, in a minute what happens if Trump doesn't get elected. Then I'm going to ask you what happens if Biden gets elected. But before we go there, a, couple, a few more terms. I'm going to throw these all together because sure. there's similarities. Yeah, I, Marxism, communism, socialism. I could do two-hour lectures on some of these things. No. So, um, I'm going to start loading up questions. No, you got it. Okay, so, so Mar Marxism, obviously going back to the author of Marxism, Karl Marx himself, wrote the Communist Manifesto, which was an economic analysis that was basically rooted in the idea of zero-sum game economics. Um, it's, it's such a fallacious idea. This is really interesting. If I had kind of one walk-away homework assignment for Christians, it is know the laws of economics really well. And just as there's laws of nature, there's laws of physics, laws of thermodynamics, there's laws of economics too. And one of the laws of economics is that in trade, it's not a zero-sum game. And one person might get slightly more of an advantage, but when you trade with somebody, it's actually mutually beneficial. We know this. It's part of the laws of economics. Karl Marx rejected this altogether. He believed that if someone ever got richer in any sort of transaction, it inherently meant that someone got poorer. This is a foolish argument. This is, a, this is something that he observed incorrectly, and he wrote an entire economic thesis about it. Karl Marx also believes something that is very, very dangerous. And this is where I get really upset with a lot of Republican politicians, because we're missing the whole part, the whole kind of the point here, which is what's happening in our country right now is a conversation on human nature. So who are we in the state of nature? Are we good or are we bad? That's actually what's happening right now in real time in our country. So if you believe the Bible, it took us like 15 verses to screw it up, right? So we know we're awful by nature, okay? <laughs> We rebel against God. In fact, the entire Bible is trying to reconcile and solve that problem. The only way you solve it is through total and complete surrender and acceptance of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right? However, Karl Marx disagreed with this. So Karl Marx disagreed with the Hobbesian view of nature. And if you guys ever know the comic Calvin and Hobbes, uh, it's always kind of very dark humor. It's called Calvin and Hobbes because John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes both had the same view of human nature, which is that humans in the state of nature, it's nasty, nasty, brutish, and short, that we're actually really awful to each other, more awful to each other than we could ever possibly imagine. So that's actually why the comic is called that. And so, however, Karl Marx and the left today, they believe human beings are wonderful in the state of nature. They do not believe in original sin. It's a rejection of the Bible. It's a rejection of everything that all of us as Christians know from a basis starting point, right? I mean, even before we can get to Christ, think about it though. If we're all good by nature, why do you need Jesus, right? And so here's what really upset me about Christianity in this amazing moment. You guys have seized this opportunity. Most churches haven't. In this time of national chaos, we could have used this as an educational tool to tell people why Jesus is necessary. And we miss this opportunity. It's like you, you're not going to perfect human beings. In fact, we're incredibly awful. We're so depraved. The only solution is Jesus Christ. What a great teaching moment. And we just completely blew it. Like, totally blew it. 
where we're like, okay, you know what? If we get rid of police, then we could be better to each other. What, what kind of crazy idea is this? Who are you? And it's like these, these pastors are taking knees for BLM? Like, resign. Go away. Like, no. And it's, it's, it's outright. I'll get to that in a second. So outrageous. And so, so Marx thought that human beings were wonderful by nature. And he, he agreed. He actually was piggybacking off of a thinker. I don't want to get too deep in the philosophy, but actually it's really important. I think people, I think you guys enjoy it. By a thinker kind, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who really, he, this is what he argued. I prefer the primitive over the civilized, the infant over the adult, the passionate lover over the calm, loyal spouse. That was his entire thinking. It's, it's, they call it romanticism, and I don't even like that term because it's too much of a nice term on a completely evil idea, quite honestly. And that's what's happening right now. So why is it that, they, that some people really believe to abolish the police? Why do they want that? Because they actually think that it's the system that is making people do bad things. No, this is a real thing. Your children are learning this in school, whether they know it or not. It's in all of our universities. Most of the media believes this. So this is exactly what's happening here. It's actually good versus evil and light versus dark in real form. And again, the church has been so blind or miseducated to realize their role in this conversation. Where we, If you believe human beings are good by nature, then your commandment is to destroy the society around you and then you think that good will come. If you think human beings are bad by nature, it's trying to punish the evil, teach the good, and incentivize the good. That's what we've done in the West, and we've done it really, really well. And yet now we're trying to disassemble all that because they think they can bring about heaven on earth, which is the end of the Communist Manifesto. It's the end of Marx's teaching, which we don't talk about enough. We talk about total government control and all this, but Marx, at the end of his book, he talked about a stateless heaven on earth. He believes that it can be achieved which is a sin in and of itself to believe that we can create heaven here on earth, but we can get really close to hell. Hell is a bottomless pit. It's really true. We can be really, really awful to each other, mostly under the guise of Marxism. So it's important that we understand exactly what's going on here. This is not high taxes versus low taxes. This is not socialized health care and private health care. I'm, I'm happy to talk about all those sorts of things, and it's not insignificant. What it really is right now is do you accept original sin, yes or no? And if the answer is no, you're, you're a fool, um, because it's just so easy to explain. I mean, if you ever have a child, you can see, I mean, you, you ever teach a kid to lie? Of course you don't. They lie anyway. It's built into their DNA. We're fallen by nature. You ever teach a kid to lie and put one parent against each other? No. They just know it instinctively. But you have to teach them goodness. You have to teach them how to be good. You have to instruct them in the ways, and it's a daily exercise. And so this is a very important starting point, and we've missed it. And I think it's actually, in my opinion, the Galatians 3 model right now, which is the law as a school teacher of Christ, where we are going to bring more people to the kingdom of God by just basically starting Genesis 1 through 10. Basically. Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve. What are the basics of who we are on this planet? And then you have the agree upon problems, then we can fast forward to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'm not saying the rest of the Old Testament is irrelevant, but what we're having right here is a complete and total repudiation and rejection in our country of what built our country, which is an acceptance of Genesis 1 through 10. And if we, if we deviate away from that, and all of a sudden then we make the argument for them that church is not essential, Jesus might not be that important, and salvation might not be that important. So we have failed that argument. We have to reassert ourselves. And that's where the communists have really seized themselves in our society right now. Yeah. I, I, would, I, I look at this from the biblical standpoint and what the Bible does inform us is coming. I believe in the near future. Uh, when you start looking at the tribulation judgments, and for anybody who's not familiar with the prophecies in the Bible about what's coming in Revelation chapter 6, 
uh, there's prophecies about what's called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You have the white horse, which represents this peacemaker. You have the red horse, which represents war. You have a black horse, which represents a radical imbalance of all of the world. And when you look at it and you study it, you have a few elite people at the top that are doing well, and you have everybody else is made equal, but they're made equally poor. In Revelation chapter 6, it says uh, when the judgment comes, it is, uh, uh, it's a day's wage for a loaf of bread, but do not harm the oil or the wine. Hence, the elite at the top are doing fine, everybody else is, is at the bottom. But that really describes the direction of what you're talking about, doesn't it? It does, and that's the trajectory of what we're on. So in times of crisis, trends that were already pre-existing accelerate. And so, for example, this is why you've seen the wealthiest people in this country add $200 billion to their net worth over the last couple months. And that's why you see the poorest individuals and the working class Americans have gone more into debt and are struggling more. So whatever trends are happening before a crisis, a crisis is nothing more than an accelerant behind it, right? And so what you're seeing right now in this country, from economic terms and also from material terms, is very, very troubling. And, it, and this is one of the reasons why it's so imperative to have, get the president reelected. Because if you do not have a vibrant or sustainable middle class in a country, the entire civilization will be overturned. It's that simple. If you do not have what Aristotle calls the golden mean, right, which is the middle, it's almost like Goldilocks and the three bears, like too hot, too cold, just perfect, right? It's the best way I can explain it in simple terms where just people that are right in the middle income, that have three to four kids, that don't have to go into debt, they believe in your society, they don't commit crimes, they live a good and ethical life, those are the people that if, you, if all of a sudden they no longer have a belief in your system, the system will be completely and totally revolutionized quicker than you could possibly imagine. And this is, there's been a lot of reasons for this, uh, and I could get into the political elite reasons, but one of the major reasons, and this is really what's happening in our country right now, it's we're, we're, not, we're getting much closer we're not getting close to socialism yet. In some ways, we are on a state and local level. But more nationally, we're getting much closer to a kleptocratic government, which is a government by the few, the wealthy, the well-connected, and the elites. And that's a very, very dangerous way to go. It's called a kleptocracy. And that, that's, that's, in mm -hmm. some ways, I don't want to say more dangerous than socialism, because I wouldn't make that argument. But it is, it is also very dangerous. Yeah. And I, when I look at the government of the last days, that is really a government that is described there also. OK, ready? Okay. So what happens if Trump is not reelected and Biden is elected? Work this yeah, out I mean, a little look, bit further. So, I mean, we game it out. I mean, if Biden wins this election in November, which I think the president's done a great job of narrowing the gap, all the polling reflects it, all of our experience on the ground reflects it. I'm happy to talk about that. I'm also happy to talk about why Christians should support Donald Trump, and I'm happy to build that out. Um, by someone who actually knows the president, not just someone who talks on TV professionally about someone they've never met. So I'm happy to talk about that. So, but look, if Joe Biden wins, here's something that's very important. And people ask me all the time, and I got this from the great Dennis Prager, and he said it in passing, and it was such an amazing thing that he said that I just, ha I just keep on repeating, where people say all the time, Charlie, do you think we're going to win or lose? And I know you're not asking because of this, but some people ask because they kind of want the betting odds and they kind of want to hedge their own involvement. And they're kind of being mm -hmm. like, if you think we're going to lose, can I be a little less involved? Like, can I, can I, is, if you think we're going to lose, I can kind of go back to my life. The probability of victory is no excuse for your involvement. It actually is completely and totally irrelevant to how hard you fight for truth. It's completely irrelevant. Whether you think you're, it's true. And, and we can kind of, as Christians, we can kind of reverse engineer this because we know ultimate victory. We know how this game ends, right? We know how it all plays out. 
So therefore, there's no excuse at all whatsoever not to contest for truth and not to fight for what is right and for what is good and what is pure in this world. And so if Biden wins, and I'm, just, I'm, just gonna, I'm not trying to be alarmist or instill fear, but you're going to have a group of people take over our government that will truly try to execute a plan that will come after every single one, every single person in this room, every person that believes in the Bible, that is conservative, that owns firearms. You will have the most radical administration in American history. Um, they will close down the embassy in Jerusalem. They'll give the Golan Heights back to Syria. They'll reinstate the Iran deal. They'll open up the Iran, uh, open up the southern border completely and totally. They will do nothing against child sex trafficking because Obama did nothing against it for eight years. Um, they, will, they will allow the absolute legalization of every single drug you can imagine around the country. They're going to confiscate your firearms. You'll have younger, more radical versions of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on every single court of every single level that you could possibly imagine. They're going to use executive power and destroy the filibuster. 51 votes in the Senate to put, put forth Medicare for all, Green New Deal, amnesty for illegal aliens, everything you could possibly imagine done in almost 10, 10 seconds or less. And that's just going to be the starting 90 days. And so I'm not saying that is alarmist. That's just that's what they're telling us they're going to do. Yeah. This is their publicly declared game plan. Mm -hmm. And so if that's not conviction enough for every single person watching this, which is thousands of people and every person here, to fight with everything you possibly have, to contest for truth right here and right now in our country, my goodness. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have an opportunity right now to support a president that did move the embassy, recognize the Golan Heights, repealed the Iran deal, Gorsuch Kavanaugh, 200 circuit court judges, securing the southern border, arresting child sex traffickers, defending people mm -hmm. of faith, most pro-life president in American history, by the way. Most pro-life president in American history. I think we have a moral obligation to support that fighter. Amen. Absolutely. It's like um, when, when uh, Jesus talks to his disciples about praying and why pray, and your heavenly father already knows what, you have, what your needs are, but ask him anyways. In the same way with righteousness. Listen. I can read the Bible and I know that there's bad stuff coming, but I also know at the end, Jesus wins and this is going to be fantastic. And right now we don't know what tomorrow holds. Yeah. I mean, there could be a great revival. There could be a great awakening. I did receive a couple of questions just a minute ago about California. Now you don't live in California, but you look at California and as California goes, they say, so goes the nation. Well, it's funny. I, I think that Gavin Newsom is going to have an arrest warrant out for me soon because everywhere I go, I keep drawing big crowds. So uh, it's, I, I think that's the... No, she's applauding that I'm going to get arrested. Actually, it would probably be really good for my career, actually. I think that if Gavin Newsom decides to put me in jail, it would probably be really interesting. Um, so California, look, I mean, again, it's, it, the probability of victory shouldn't be a reason for your involvement. I think that's a really important thing. And yeah. so, I mean, would yeah. you have something to comment on something particular in California or? Yeah, it, it was uh, with all the people moving out of California. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's a real which thing. Which direction do you all, see this going? I, I it looks to me like Arizona. mostly conservatives. Uh, you're in Arizona, right? Yeah, stop coming. We're going to build a wall <laughs> and deport all of you. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that's coming. It seems to be conservative. ruining everything. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's one of the most perplexing things I've ever, I mean, there's some things that really confound me and really, really confuse me, which is, you go leave a socialist wasteland to go create another socialist wasteland. Like, I just yeah. can't understand that. Yeah. Like, oh, we hate this place, too high taxes. Let's go vote for more yeah. high taxes and for awful things. Like, what would you, she just left that. That, Wait, that, that, that. that puzzles me. I look and go, okay, so San Francisco has been ruined by the people who voted for the things that And they that come they to Scottsdale and they go vote for the exact same and, things. And, and that's what they do. And then they wonder why it ends up that way. That's, no, I mean, that's the definition of insanity, I think, well, isn't yeah, it? It's something like that. I mean, it's the definition of the left. 
which is exactly <laughs> that, which is don't think, just feel, and go in the world and destroy everything. And so it's what the left does. So in Scottsdale, I mean, seriously, homelessness on the way up, drug abuse, all these things, I feel like it's, it's an incubation of San Francisco happening. And I mean, it's just that they, they, will, they will destroy everything they touch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, David Horowitz said recently on Front Page Magazine, today our nation is facing the most serious threat to establish a, such a tyranny in our uh, entire history. And I look at what's happening right now. When coronavirus started, yeah. there's a lot of concerns about it. So you know, most of us just said, hey, let's go along with the concerns. But we were told here in California, I believe it was a two, you're going to need to shut down for two or three weeks. About that, right? Something very similar to what Daniel was told in the book of Daniel. Hey, Daniel, uh, you can't worship the Lord for, I think it was one month or 30 days or something like that. Very similar to that. Daniel goes in and says, no, we're going to worship the Lord. So this started back in March. Here we are six months later, seven months later, and we're still in this, and they're still trying to tell us that you can't do these things. Now, I want you to talk on the real pandemic. Uh, in the beginning of August, I believe, 8,000 people in the entire state of California had died of coronavirus with inflated numbers and manipulated numbers, I might say. At the same time, I believe 50,000 babies have been aborted yeah. in the same time. And you look at that, and I look at the Old Testament. You brought up, you brought up the book of Judges. I look at the Old Testament, and Israel was judged, and Judah were judged. One of the main sins they had was sacrificing babies on the arms of Molech. And, and killing them. And when I look at abortion and what, what the reality of this, look, I know there's forgiveness for any sin that anybody commits. I totally get that. But at the same time, we got to face the reality of where we are and we got to stand up for righteousness. And yeah. churches have not stood up for this. Oh my goodness. I mean, the American church, and I say that broadly, I don't mean you guys, you know what I mean. I mean institutional Christianity. And you, you, yeah, you, you get it. And they were very quick to go follow BLM Incorporated, which wants the destruction of the Western prescribed nuclear family, abolishing prisons and abolishing police, while many churches within the Southern California area were telling their congregants to go march and go on the streets and post black squares. Yet very interestingly enough, they didn't do anything on Sanctity of Life Sunday at all, where we have one million abortions a year in this country, one million abortions a year. And if you can't get that issue right, if you can't defend the people that can't defend themselves, what other sins are you allowing to happen in your society? And the answer is quite a lot. It is a tributary. From all things go, I mean, if you cannot get that very basic thing, which is life, the defense of the innocent. And you make a very interesting point, and it's something that's actually not talked about a lot, which is there's a very, very disturbing trends, a trend amongst ancient civilizations and child sacrifice. It's very weird. And if you go into Aztec and Mayan culture and Incan culture, Egyptian culture, it's, it's not, it was not a rarity that, that for whatever reason, and you guys can fill in the blanks for your own conclusion of that, that this is not some sort of newfound thing that we came across. In fact, when we actually did excavation, we being the Westerners, excavation in Greek and Roman times, underneath some of what they consider the bathhouses, we have discovered massive mass graves of babies where they used to sacrifice young children uh, en masse. So this is, not a, this is not some sort of new thing. And you guys can fill in the gaps as to why that is. I think there's a very, very specific spiritual reason for this. However, if you're not going to contest for those that can't fight for themselves, then I think you should shut down your church, to be perfectly honest with you, because it's, it's that simple. Um, it, it, is, it is such an, I mean, I, I have these churches, first of all, I deal with some of these pastors, and they're like, oh, it's actually Jesus was pro-choice. Like, there are some things that are so beyond foolish and not even worthy of engaging with, that would be one of them. In fact, I would just love to have a film debate against some of those people, because I could definitely make sure a couple hundred million people see it. Um, because there's some, it's just such a wrong thing to say. It's just, it's so pathologically untrue. 
But some of these churches are like, well, I don't want to offend my congregation. I say, wait mm-hmm. a second. I say, the whole point about most people are going to hell, that doesn't offend people. I mean, and this is really what it stems from. It stems from bad theology. And let's just be very honest. Poor theology, weak theology, feel-good Christianity, which is TED Talk with rock and roll concert and lots of lights, skinny jeans, looking into the YouTube live channel, everyone loves me, I spent two hours editing an Instagram picture. That kind of entire cultural Christianity that's been created in a lot of different ways has prevented Christians from contesting for what is right and for what is good. And so let's just, if we are honest with ourselves, one million abortions a year in this country. California leads the entire country in abortions by far. It's not even close. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing to actually help solve that issue? Not even issue, it's a moral crisis. And I always say this every time I talk about abortion. I want to be very clear. For young women out there that have had abortions, or any women out there, I am not condemning you. I am not, making, I am not going after you at all whatsoever. I, that, that, is a, that is a personal struggle that, you, that, that I don't even want to get into. I, I believe you've been manipulated. That's what I'm really trying to say. I think that the abortionists lie to young women and they do so in predatory fashion where most young women are not given the opportunity to see an ultrasound and they don't know what they're doing. Most young women. And so I think we in, in the pro-life movement have to do a much better job of having a bridge of compassion to the women that have had abortion. To the abortionists or the abortion doctors, not even close. They know exactly what they're doing. They are the ones that are going into these operating rooms and they are doing things that are so unspeakably evil. So I think that we as Christians need to really be honest about that because young women that have had abortions, they're far more likely to commit suicide. They have mental health uh, issues that are beyond uh, discussing physical, mm-hmm. spiritual damage for the rest of their life. But if we can't get that one issue right, the defense of babies that cannot defend themselves, it starts to explain a lot of the other moral confusion that we have all, of, all across mm-hmm. our country, country and culture. Yeah. Uh, I, I, um... For me, I, I praise the Lord. I see a few people out here this evening that have ministries to uh, ladies that have had an abortion, whether they are younger or older. I've talked to ladies that are 60 or 70 years old that had abortion uh, 50 years ago and you know, hurting all of their life. There's forgiveness, but at the same time, uh, God forgives anybody of any sins. Jesus will not cast out anybody who comes to him. But at the same time, I look at the church, and Charlie, I can go back decades and see when the church started to get away from the Bible and started to get away from the truth. Uh, not standing up uh, for uh, the church, uh, God in schools, uh, when those yeah. options were, were on the table. Um, you can go all the way back to evolution. You, I mean, there's so many different things you can go, but where was the church? So now, here we are, the church, uh, a, a TED Talk with a rock and roll concert, I think is the perfect description of where we have ended up. So when it comes to the church being effective in society and effective in culture, how can it be if the depth of the Bible was never taught? Well, look, the Word of God is timeless, and God works in mysterious ways. So I, I, I've been really studying the Great Awakenings in this country, and all four of them are very unique. They all have their own different reasons why they came up. The first one led mostly by Jonathan Edwards, who gave probably the most famous sermon in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I encourage you guys all to read that tonight. It's just as applicable then it is today, which I just think calls the timelessness and the timeliness of the Bible. It's both timelessness and timely. Isn't that amazing how you have a book? The more you read it, it reads you. It's just awesome. So I encourage you guys to check that out. And by the way, the Bible should be taught in every, every single school across the country, bar none, and they should be stripped of all their funding if they don't, don't, don't teach it. Yeah. That's simple. And I, I advocate for that. 
we should never fund a school if it does not teach the Bible, because it's a, it's, a, it's a historical document as much as it is a religious document. And just acting as if this book doesn't exist is actually allowing your a religious viewpoint to actually act as a religion in our schools. And so you asked a question about um, what Christians can do. It's a really interesting thing. I actually think that the law is going to be a school teacher to Christ, as it tells us in Galatians 3, that we are actually of an opportunity. Every awakening is different. I have a contrarian view. Most mainstream pastors will completely disagree with this, but hear me out here. I actually think that we have young people in particular that are going through a crisis right now, a crisis of meaning, a crisis of direction, a crisis of responsibility. And I actually think that before we're actually able to teach the gospel, we have to get back to that elemental question of are you flawed by nature or not? And I actually think the law and very specific steps of obedience to the law will point people to Christ. I think it's different than other awakenings in the past where Billy Graham's awakening in the 60s and 70s was very dominant on grace, which was really good. It was the message for the time. I actually think now that we have people living in a state of absolute chaos and misery, a lot of young people, I think if you're able to give them very specific not very specific biblical truths of how they can reorient their life and aim themselves out and then show them the true path that they should focus at, I think we're on the verge of a great awakening. However, this is something that most institutional Christianity disagrees with because that actually involves politics and it involves civics and it involves governmental interaction. So what I'm actually saying, again, mind you, it is something that is not well held. I actually think that politics and correct civic engagement can point more people to Christ than ever before. And I see it happen every single day where I have young people that interact with me that are secular, that have never come into a church, as the great Pastor Rob McCoy would say, never darken the doors of a church. And yet they hear my podcast, they agree with me politically, and all of a sudden they want to know the source of that liberty. They want to know where this all came from. And I say, that's easy. With the Spirit of the Lord, there is liberty. We have freedom from sin, from Jesus Christ. And And there's something, as we know... There's something that happens there that can only be explained by the Holy Spirit where people are now giving their lives to Christ because I was able to explain organized governmental, civic, and behavioral thinking that is rooted in the law that points them to Christ. So I think there's a great opportunity here, and I think the church, as we get more involved in politics, as we get more involved in civics, I think we're going to have more conversions and a great awakening, the likes of which we can never anticipate in this country, which is the opposite of what most of the institutional pastors would lead you to believe. Amen. I, I, I love hearing that. I, I'm, I'm finding that people that I've known for a long time uh, never, we get along, but they never wanted to talk about the Bible, wouldn't bring up the things that I like talking about, certainly not Bible prophecy, atheists, uh, agnostics, uh, and on down the list are actually asking me questions now. And, yeah. and I think that is just absolutely fantastic when I see that happening from the spiritual perspective. Now, you look like you're going to say something. No, I mean, I, okay. I, I just want to say for anyone out, out there that's watching on the live stream that's secular or atheist, um, thank you for watching this, by the way. And this is a really interesting thing because we have to look at people that do believe in nothing or at least, a, a, at least that are uh, agnostic. Uh, as opportunities, uh, opportunities to be able to bring people into the kingdom of God. And I think that there's a great opportunity here in our country and in the kingdom to be able to communicate to young people that have been sold atheism as a religion. And it's very interesting, and this is, a, this is the truth. I travel more college campuses than anyone else. I've been to Brown, I've been to Stanford, I've been to UCLA, I've been to Berkeley. The fastest growing religion in America is atheism. And atheism is a religion. It's not the lack of a religion. They have a unified belief. 
they evangelize, they proselytize, they meet with regularity. They are a religion. And it's actually a religion that if you play it out, is something that is a crisis of meaning and it's very, very depressing because it's a belief in nothingness. And so we have hope, we have love, we have a gospel to share where there is a creator and a heavenly father that loved you enough to create you in his image and he sent his son to be able to believe that you can have eternal life. And that is the sweetest gift we can give people. And I think, and this is something that I'm so saddened about though, is that on college campuses, the Christian groups are nowhere to be found. In fact, they cower and they hide and they have their five little people that meet. It's the atheist groups that are the most vocal, that are the most bold. And, and so this is where I, I think that we have a great opportunity to be able to get into this marketplace and contest for the truth of the Bible, the existence of God, and of course, his son Jesus. Amen. Um, with that, there's a lot of intimidation, which I think happens within the universities. Of course. You have professors that are, many of them are, are Marxists. Just, they'll, they'll tell you they're Marxists. Yep. Or they'll hide it and still they're teaching it so there's intimidation in the classrooms and then there's there's physical intimidation also so you put these things together then we throw in uh blm uh so black lives matter Uh, the movement right yeah i want to be very clear i always call it blm inc because the statement is true because all lives do matter which we are told very explicitly in the bible all lives matter when i criticize i'm criticizing the organization BLM Incorporated. I want to be very, very clear. Yeah. And, I've, and, and I knew you would, so thank you very much. Yeah. But with that, when, when you look at what is done under this banner, and uh, it's anti-God, yes. anti-Bible, um, it's anti-everything that I believe in, and then we are watching what's happening in societies based upon this, and, and I'm watching a young lady the other day, I'm not sure where it was, you probably saw the same picture, um, she's inside a restaurant. It looked like she's sitting down. A huge crowd gathered around her, um, and they're yelling at her. They're raising the fist, which apparently is the new solidarity. S- the solidarity of the movement, and they're yelling at her, from what I understand, to raise her fist. So we see this radical intimidation yeah. that's taking place. And in the universities, what's a kid to do in a university like that? Yeah, so let me, if I can, add a little context to the root and the, the philosophical basis here of what's happening. I think it'll be really instructive, and then we'll talk about the university basis of it. So there's a couple lessons from the 20th century that we need to derive. The 20th century was a bloodbath, by the way. We don't teach our kids about this. We human beings killed 130 million other human beings intentionally. Okay, We sent people to their intentional and methodical deaths in communist China, in Soviet Russia, in Germany, in Italy, in Pol Pot, in Cambodia. And so the fact that we in 2020 have not learned that lesson just shows how we as human beings need Jesus Christ because we are so screwed up, it's unbelievable. Because if you want to talk about a teaching lesson that should orient our path, it's the 20th century. The gulags, Mao Zedong, and this is recent. We have people alive that survived this stuff, and we still don't have those lessons. What are those lessons? Don't judge people based on immutable characteristics. Don't judge people on things that they cannot change skin color being the most obvious one. So don't say something like, all white people are racist. Like, no, you're racist for saying that, actually. Okay? Don't say something like, well, you have institutional privilege based on your skin color. No, that's actually a racist statement. It is. So don't judge people based on the color of their skin. Also, the second lesson is don't make people atone for something they themselves did not do. It's a really bad idea. This is called blood guilt. This is against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus liberated us from all sorts of tribal and lines of ancestry where you yourself have to individually atone for your sins to your creator through Christ Jesus. It's that simple. 
Your father can't save you for you. Your grandfather can't save you for you. This idea that you're going to be banished for the next seven generations, you're liberated by Christ. But you've got to do, you have to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And we take this for granted, but that was not the norm. It wasn't. Usually you were confined to your own tribal group and there was no ability to break out of that. And the final thing is this, is when someone promises utopia, don't believe them and run the other way and oppose them. And that's exactly what's happening here. And the final thing is this, is when massive groups of people walk the streets and try to publicly condemn you for not believing what they believe, that's a dangerous sign and a fire alarm, everybody. I'm telling you right now, you play this out, 130 million people died under this kind of behavior in the yeah. 20th century. So what do you do in a university campus? I'm happy to talk about education, happy to talk about, this is, that's actually what I do, it's my day job, um, visiting college campuses so you don't have to. Um, and so, and what, what's, what is a young person to do? Um, it's harder than ever to be a Christian and a conservative on a college campus. Totally recognize and understand that. That's why we have Turning Point USA and we have all these chapters all across the country contesting for these principles. And I, I, just, I want to just say this, not every kid has to go to college. Not every kid has to go to four-year college. It's a provocative view, but I believe it. I actually think we have way too many kids going to college in our country. I actually think that most kids that go to college actually end up worse if they wouldn't have gone to college. They end up in debt, filled with bad ideas, bitter, angry, resentful, and deceitful around the country around them. And so middle-class families are going into debt, endlessly into debt, to go borrow money they don't have, to send their kids to study things that don't matter, to find jobs that don't exist. While we need more plumbers, electricians, HVAC, police officers, firefighters, entrepreneurs, people that work with their hands, people manufacturing. And yet in our society, we value people that have that certificate from a four-year college, which I'm not anti-college, but I am against what college has become in our country, which is an indoctrination activist factory that creates very, very angry people in a world that they should be full of gratitude around. And so if you're willing to send your kid to college, um, think carefully and pray on that. Start from the default position and, ha and write a two-page paper. Have your kid write it as to why they should go to college. And if they can't come up with good reasons, then don't send them. Because it should be worth 70,000. If it's worth $70,000 in debt to you, be careful. Because that is, just so you understand, that is 30 years of debt repayment with interest. It could be as far as 40 years that you might be signing on the dotted line. And you might say, well, Charlie, how is he supposed to succeed or she supposed to succeed without it? Well, first of all, only 59% of people that go to college graduate. 41% drop out, just so you understand. Any business that has only a 59% success rate would be shut down and be called a fraud. Okay? If you had a 59% success rate of not getting food poisoning at Applebee's, they'd be shut down and run out of the town. Okay? <laughs> True. Out of the people that graduate, only 44, 44% of people that have graduated, according to the New York Federal Reserve, are gainfully employed with jobs that do not require college degrees. Those are just the people that are employed. And the youth unemployment is 13% as it is. So a lot of them aren't employed. The ones that are employed are doing a job that never required them to go to college all in the first place. It's become this incredibly expensive rite of passage that we have to just state time out. What are we doing here? And it has become so baked into the lexicon of aspirational middle-class families. I, I, in some ways, am trying to be the voice in the wilderness and telling you guys to say, stop, because we're doing something so dreadful to our country right now. So here's, here's, my, here's my challenge to people. If you're willing to send your kid or your child for hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt, take those hundreds of thousands of dollars, here's a thought exercise, and think about it. And instead of sending them to school, maybe send them for a gap year, put all that money into just a very moderately managed money market account or index fund. After four years, see how much it's worth. 
See if you're, and, and by the way, have your child watch PragerU videos, listen to my podcast, listen to the good pastor, listen to Victor Davis Hanson, and see who actually has better character, a better worldview, and is more financially able to take on the world versus all of their colleagues that went to that overly inflated institution that are now $150,000, $200,000 in debt, filled with awful ideas, have very little to any skills, a depleted confidence, very little understanding of where they're going. And so, and this is a very interesting thing to say, but I say it quite often, which is high school seniors are way more mature than college seniors. We, haven't, we, we actually create weaker, more immature people through the college system. We do. And so and college should be a place where we create people more capable to endure the inevitable suffering of life. So it should be, we're going to make you stronger, we're going to make you tougher, we're going to make you more capable to hear opposing ideas. The exact opposite actually happens. Where we don't create stronger people, we create people more likely to try to complain about what's going on around them and try to remove those things. When it really should be, we are going to get you ready to endure this really hard thing called life. That does not happen at all. And they do not learn the great Western thinkers. They do not learn the teachings of the Bible. And there's exceptions. I know there's great schools out there, and I'm not trying to, but I'm talking about 99% of schools, okay? And that is, uh, trust me, I can tell you from experience, what I'm saying is true. And so when it comes to university, I think that we need to have a very serious, if, if, if it continues as it is, the country will disintegrate. It's that simple. This is not sustainable. It's just that, I mean, we have $1.3 trillion in collective student loan debt. Middle class incomes are going down. And if I may say one more thing about this, we, we, talk, we look at Portland, we look at Seattle, we look at these cities that are disintegrating in front of us. And a lot of them are 28, 29, and 30 year olds. And for the adults in the room, I want you to think back when you were 29 or 30. Think back when you were 31. You probably had this as the case, because this is the way America was. You were working hard and you saw your life get a little bit better year after year. Just a little bit, right? You saw your ability to have maybe a little bit better vacation, save a little money. Young people don't have that right now. They do not see their life getting materially better at all. They don't. In fact, we're on pace to have 500,000 less children this year than last year. 500,000. We're on the verge of a population collapse in this country. That we've, no one is talking about, by the way. None of the politicians are talking. That's why in my RNC speech, I said we need to have a society that makes it easier to have many children. Because we are not doing that right now. In fact, everyone's like, oh, we're going to have a population boom after the virus shutdown. No, it's the exact opposite. People can't afford children. They don't want to bring them into a chaotic world. And it's not a value that they hold because having children is a value. It is. And so to close the point, when you are renting and not paying a mortgage, when you have a negative $80,000 net worth, you have no skills, and your business is shut down. So we tell people a lot, we as conservatives, oh, go work harder. I'm sorry, you shut down the entire civilization for nine months. Where are these young people supposed to work exactly? What are they supposed to do? Tell me, where are they supposed to go get a job? We have, we have made, and I'm telling you, for the adults in the room, I'm not trying to be like intergenerationally con condemning here, but it's honest. There's an injustice happening right now to young people in this country. And it's not, by the way, it's not an excuse for young people out there to go burn everything down or play a victim, okay? In fact, it's not an excuse ever. Still make good choices, apply yourself correctly, and don't for a second use this as a hall pass, you know, to pass go and say like, oh, I'm a victim, I get free stuff. Like, no, you don't, okay? You still have to act ethically, act ethically find a job, be an entrepreneur, think creatively. But for adults, you have to ask yourself, have we really done a good job for young people in this country the last nine months? And the God's honest truth is, we have really done something immoral to the students and to the young people of this country. And it's got to stop right now. Yeah, the, um, absolutely. Um,
Okay, let me let me say this. Listen, and I, it, I'm happy to go overtime if you want. I mean, we I are. Really are we already are. Praise the Lord. So I'm going to say this to everybody watching online. This is about the time I start taking online questions. Okay. And also for anybody here, you can send them right now to YouTube or through my Facebook, and I will get them. So, so with everybody out there, but uh, I, I want to uh, bring this up. When I, you mentioned uh, society collapsing, um, not just... So optimistic, right? Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> you sound like me. <laughs> and businesses collapsing, and uh, do you think this is intentional? Part of it is, of course, yeah, I mean, look, there's always architects of chaos. I'm less into the belief that there are very specific people that are pushing the buttons for every single output. I do think, though, that there are general architects of chaos that are happy to see the things that are happening in this country. So let me phrase okay. it that way. I, I don't get too molecular with this, where every single mandate is necessarily behind every single decision. I was the person behind that. But do I think that there are people that are happy that 30 million people are out of work? Of course, absolutely. I mean, that is a perfect way to be able to mm -hmm. turn that country into a Marxist country. I mean, that is a perfect, that is a perfect population for that. Do I think that there is a population that is happy that all of a sudden the pharmaceutical companies now have an ability to go sell a national vaccine to 300 million people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that there's some people that are really happy about that. Do I think that there are people that are happy that antidepressant medication has increased by tenfold over the last 90 days because we decided we should tell people not to leave their homes? Yeah, I think that mm -hmm. some people are happy about that. In fact, I think there's incentives to actually tell people to continue to act in that way and continue the fear-mongering exercise. And so, yeah, the answer to that is yes. But I will say this, that in the broader incentives, there, there's some competing coalitions here. And just from a strategic standpoint, those of us that believe in America and a decent and reasonable life and believe in the Judeo-Christian ethic, here's how we can be successful. Because there's an unholy alliance that exists between four or five groups that actually otherwise would have hated each other. There's the corporate tyrants, that are friends with the absolute Marxists, that are friends with the Islam Islamists, that are friends with the Chinese Communist Party. And all four of them hate each other, but they actually all agree that America's the obstacle and we must destroy it at all costs. So what do I mean by that? You have the corporate tyrants that are friends with the Marxists. It's very bizarre, actually, where it's kind of the eat me last strategy. So this is what you see happening at the National Basketball Association and the NFL and PepsiCo where they are afraid that the storming of the Bastille is going to result in them having to shutter all their business. So they go to the Marxists and they say, so what causes do I have to go send a $100 million wire to? Like, oh, that one, okay, now you're not going to come eat me, which is one of the most foolish things imaginable because they will get burned down too. And then you have the Islamic groups that are from the Middle East, the Iranians in particular, that want the total destruction of Israel and of America, that are friends with the LGBT groups. So, like, you guys hate, you throw gays off the top of buildings. Like, what? how are you guys friends with each other? Like, they're marching in the streets against Donald Trump. You do understand it's illegal to be gay in Iran. One of my favorite quotes, I encourage you guys all to look this up. They, they put him on the back burner because he was not really good for PR for the uh, evil Islamic Republic of Iran. When Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was interviewed on 60 Minutes, they said, so how do you treat gay people in Iran? He said, we do not have gay people in Iran. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Coming in hot. So, um, it's just, you're trying to tell me the country with 80 million people, you don't have one gay person? Like, they just throw them off rooftops. They give them flying lessons with no net. Um, and yet, they're friends with the, gay, the LGBT. Because you know what the Islamic people and the gay, and the gay advocacy groups have, have in common? They hate Christianity. That's the one thing they have in common, right? I'm not saying all of the gay groups do, but the activist ones that absolutely are with the Islamic 
republic, the activist ones, and then the Chinese Communist Party pairing up with the corporate tyrants. And so you had this coalition that's been built. So our path to victory strategically, just talking about politically and otherwise, is separating these groups and making them fight within each other because they actually philosophically hate each other. I mean, the Marxist turning on Jeff Bezos is actually a very healthy thing. It is. Having the Bernie Sanders people go up against Amazon, like blood sport, let it happen, basically, right? Because right now they've actually found a common alliance in destroying Western civilization together. So I can't remember even close to what your question was, but I hope that helps touch it. So, you know, I don't remember what it was either, but it was really good. So everything you just said, I really enjoyed. I'm watching cities burn down. Okay, that was by, what you're talking about. By, no, we weren't watching. We were talking yeah, about cities. Great. I don't know what, what what was my question. So, 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 but still, we're watching cities burn down, and it, they're primarily run by leftists, aren't they? Yeah, of course. I, I mean, mean, Portland, Seattle, Minneapolis, and, Chicago. And here's what the most amazing thing is that. I mean, I, co I come from the suburbs of Chicago. Chicago has not had a Republican mayor since 1931. Atlanta has not had a Republican mayor since the 1800s. Chicago has Democrat aldermen, congressmen, city council, mayor, everything you could possibly imagine. Yet they're out there saying Republicans are to blame for the 534 black-on-black -black crimes that happen every single year and for all the crime, the robbery. And just today there was a shooting in a Chicago restaurant yes. where one was killed and six were injured. Yet somehow, with the strictest gun control, they control everything. It's a complete and total political monopoly. And that's not a good thing for anybody. And yet, the Democrats own this. Make no mistake. They own the tragedy of these cities. And here's what's really sad. It's sad because if there was a tragedy in Republican-owned areas, Democrats wouldn't care at all. They wouldn't. But the fact that we actually care about all Americans and all lives, despite all these cities being Democrat monopolist strongholds, we still pray and cry when lives are lost in them. Because we don't look at things as, oh, we can get more votes. We're like, no, that's wrong. We should do something about it because the innocent are going to be harmed, yeah. which is what's happening. And what's happening in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Portland, and Seattle, and San Francisco, and a little bit in Los Angeles, is nothing less than the absolute unra unraveling of decent society. I mean, just in Chicago, three, two, th two and a half weeks ago, I'll give you a very quick story on this, which is BLM Incorporated, went to the streets of Chicago and executed a planned and deliberate terror campaign where 600 businesses were totally and completely looted, burned down to the ground. And one story in particular I want to share with you, a guy named, by the name of Mohammed Ashik. He legally immigrated to this country 42 years ago, paid his taxes, obediently paid his property taxes, played by the rules, never committed a crime. He owned a, wash, a watch repair shop on Wabash Avenue, underneath the L in Chicago. A lot of you might be familiar with that. where they filmed Batman. You guys might know the imagery. BLM Incorporated hits the streets. He tries to go defend his business. The police are nowhere to be found. Stand down order by Lori Lightfoot, Democrat mayor. He tries to defend his business. BLM says, go away, you don't want to be here. And he says, please, this is my livelihood. Please don't steal this stuff. They intimidate him. He runs away. They steal everything. $900,000 worth of merchandise. Now, None of it's insured. Why? Because he's repairing other people's stuff. Watch repair. Family heirlooms, intergenerational tokens and items, gone forever, sold for scraps on the street. His entire life is over. He had to declare personal bankruptcy. Muhammad Ashik, 42 years in this country. He believed in this system. He did nothing wrong. And yet, Lori Lightfoot and the Democrat City Council, by the way, there's thousands of stories like this across the country. Thousands. When we have betrayed, and you know who Muhammad Ashik is? He is lower middle class minority that thought this place was a safe haven to go pursue what is good. It's not Jeff Bezos' house is raided. 
It's not the Apple CEO whose house or the entire corporate class. No, no. It's Muhammad Ashik who came here and did the right thing for 42 years, who BLM Incorporated is raiding for reparations. Now that's a terrorist organization, okay? That, that is wrong and that is evil and that is immoral. And that is happening all across the country at an alarming rate. And so, I, I, and if we allow this to continue and we do not deploy law enforcement on every single level, National Guard police, to stop the insurrection happening in our country, decent and reasonable people will not take this anymore. And I don't support that. What's going to happen, and you game this out, you're starting to see this pop up a little bit, is that decent and reasonable people, and I do not support vigilante justice, I don't, but if you want to know a story that archetypically embodies exactly where we are going, it's the story of Batman, okay? And I, we, we all know this story, and we can laugh, but it's actually a very, it's, it's, it's rooted in truth. What was Gotham City? Gotham City was a prophecy and a prediction, where there, the criminals ran the city, the police were bought and paid for, the district attorney was completely corrupt, and what needed to rise up? A vigilante to go enforce the law. Bad idea. It's actually awful, because most people are not like Batman, okay? They're not. In fact, instead of Batman coming in to save, you're going to have civil unrest. And so if the police do not, are not able to do their job, if you do not deploy law enforcement, you're going to have the unraveling of this gift we have been given of the people in my ancestors before me and my family who stormed the beaches of Normandy, that flew over the islands in the Pacific Ocean, that fought in the Civil War, and bled in all these conflicts. We're just going to unravel it in our cities like this? I'm telling you, everybody, this is a fire alarm. You've got to get very serious because we can lose this gift in an instant, and we are so close to it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a call to stand up and press forward. Uh, it, it, I want to get into voting in a minute because I think you, there how many evangelicals don't vote? I Any mean, I, the numbers vary, but I think a fairly accepted statistic is only about half of regular attending churchgoers vote. That's a, that's a pretty, about 50%. That is, yeah. about, that is a well-accepted statistic, by the way, of uh, political scientists. Yeah. And now they're trying to tell everybody, don't go vote. In the, which is a whole well, other yeah, thing. Yeah, and I mean, so some Christians, and I, and I hear this a lot, they say, well, I, I don't like Donald Trump. And they say, oh, okay, sure, great. Um, so they say, he's awful, he's immoral, he's all these sorts of things. I say, well, teach me how to be as good as you, and I'd be happy to sign up for that program, first of all, right? <laughs> so, and secondly, you look at the Bible, and I can understand on the surface, for an untrained eye, and kind of a sloppy mind, why a three times married, twice di divorced, playboy billionaire from New York, being the most pro-life president in American history might make your head spin. But that's exactly how God works, everybody. He uses unusual vessels for righteous purposes all the time. And so I said something, I said something in my RNC speech that really made the left unhappy, which is exactly how I know him right over the topic. Like, that's exactly it. So, and I called President Donald Trump the bodyguard of Western civilization. And... If I could build this yeah. out a little bit. Oh, yeah. I, I, yes. By the way, in my speech, everything I said was prayed over and was carefully chosen. And it was the most deliberate speech I've ever given in my life. And I encourage you guys to watch it and just read the transcript because there's actually references to First Timothy in there, living quiet and peaceable lives, church more important than a casino. I try to fit a lot in there, okay, uh, in four minutes. But the one part in there that really got everyone animated is when I called President Trump the bodyguard of Western civilization. Mm -hmm. Now, they got upset because of the Western civilization part because they hate the West. But part of the bodyguard imagery I think is really effective. I want you to think for a second, when, if you were to hire a bodyguard for your family, do you care about the tweets they sent earlier in the day? <laughs> if you were to hire a bodyguard, you want them probably to be stronger, more aware, 
better at perceiving threats, how to avoid them and how to confront them than anyone else. And you want someone who what? Is going to tell you the truth about what's coming next to your home when you hire a bodyguard, right? It's a complete and total threat analysis of a civilization in front of you. That's why I love that analogy. Because we hired him to protect this gift that we have been given. And guess what? If all of a sudden, if he has to tell the family, you get in the living room, I'm going to go fight these people because I know how, he's going to win because he's a street fighter from the Bronx. And he knows, from Brooklyn, I'm sorry, where he knows how to get into the streets and he knows how to win. And people say, well, that's not very biblical. I'm saying, well, you guys go get a scissors and take out Samson from your Bible, okay? Because <laughs> he took, God came to him in the bed of a prostitute, with, with, with a prostitute in bed. I can't even tell eight-year-olds about this. I'm like, I changed the story. Like, <laughs> he took a jaw of a donkey and killed a thousand Philistines and died a sacrificial death for God because the people of Israel were unwilling to fight at that particular moment. This idea that God can't use people for specific purposes. Let me tell you, President Trump is prayed over every single day by Mike Pence in the Oval Office. He's invited more pastors to the White House than George W. Bush ever did. Most pro-life president in American history. Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, fighting for religious liberty, embassy to Jerusalem, Golan Heights. I could continue. So, thank you. Um, <laughs> so I highly implore people to look at these things comprehensively with wisdom, not just like, oh, I don't like this tweet, I'm not going to vote for him. I actually think that's a silly and reckless reason yeah. not to vote for President Donald Trump. Amen. I, um, I, I couldn't agree more. I had a, had a conversation recently with somebody that's pretty close to me. Uh, they've been going to church for a number of years. Fairly conservative, I thought. And then we're talking about this. And, and I said, what do you, what's your issue with Trump? Well, I, I don't like the way he speaks. And, and this guy's really intelligent. Yeah, I don't like the way he speaks. And, and have you ever read his tweets? And I said, so his tweets bother you more than 61 million that's, that's, babies that's, that's being exactly aborted. Right. And I look at go, how, do the, how is there even any comparison there? It, 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 well, and, and some people say, well, my vote is an endorsement of all of his immoral behavior. I said, wait a second, hold on. I say, go, go back in your voting history. Did you go vote for Ronald Reagan? Because he was divorced. Did you go vote for any other Republican ever that might have any sort of moral indecency. By the way, let's just get off this entire moral high horse thing. We're all sinners. We all fall short of God's kingdom, okay? It's like, I'm a better person than him. Like, congratulations, you get a medal. Okay, great, sure. He's fighting for what is good and what is right. You are here, you're here being like, oh, I'm such a good person. Like, okay, I'd rather have someone that's fighting for what is good than someone that's on yeah. their po podium and like, well, I'm a really good person. I'm not going to go vote and all this. Like, okay, great. Go, go into the hills and we're actually going to contest for truth and go save babies that are being slaughtered in Planned Parenthood, okay? Because that's what I consider to be the biblical mandate of making disciples amen. of all nations. I, I, amen. I never once casted my vote for the pastor of the United States. President, yeah. yes, but not, not pastor. So that's not somebody that we are voting for. No, yeah, I can look at my own life. And, and if we're all honest, we're all pretty messed up. And you, it, it, Charlie, it was some years ago, there's no way you'd sit up here with me. I, 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 uh, I'm afraid of myself sometimes. So, that's, all, but, that's the story of yeah, humanity. That is the story. You, you mentioned Samson. You have David in the Bible. Has, uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba. And then has her husband murdered. And yet he's a man after God's own heart. One of the greatest kings that has ever lived in the history of the world. And, and you look at these things and you go, man, this is just mind-boggling. The, the, the way that people are reasoning through this. Uh, mass confusion, but the enemy is the author of confusion. I, I got to ask you two more questions if we you don't mind. We can stay longer, whatever you want. Okay. All right. Kurt Schilling yeah. said, it's okay to gather in the streets to burn Bibles about Portland. 
but are. it is against the law to gather in the name of Christ. Sounds to me, uh, in, in church, in the name of Christ, it sounds to me like Berlin, 1936. I mean, look, I, I don't like overusing the 1930s uh, Germany stuff, just to be perfectly honest with you. Um, I think that it's a very specific horror, and I think it's actually thrown around way too cheap, cheaply, to be honest. Um, and so I'm just going to kind of put pause on that. Instead, I would much rather talk about Mao Zedong's China and the Soviet Union. And they're actually different in their own capacity. And the, the reason I just, the, the 1930s thing, I just think that yeah. it, it, it's, I, I think that there's a misunderstanding in a lot of circles, and I think it actually cheapens what happens in the 1930s, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and I don't like it when the right does it. I don't like it when the left does it. Um, while there are similarities at times to behavior and things, I just, for me, I, that's my own kind of personal approach to that. However, I, let's just talk about the 20th century, which we have, which I think is a nice segue from that um, mention, which is, what did they do in the Soviet Union when they were taking power and Joseph Stalin killed actually more people than were killed in 1930s Germany, by the way? More people were killed in the Soviet Union than were killed in 1930s and early 1940s Germany which was Joseph Stalin went after intentionally and criminalized and prosecuted all the pastors and closed down the churches. Why? Because dictators and tyrants will never allow a power to be higher than themselves. This is something that we are seeing right now with the corporate class. They want to make themselves into gods. They want to turn themselves into permanent deities above us all. This is a predictable human trajectory. We saw this with all of the great kings of Alexander the Great and Napoleon that whenever someone gets to absolute power, they then want to get to an interval higher to make themselves into a god of some sort. This was the trajectory of all the Egyptian pharaohs, of all the leaders of the Mayan and the Incan and the Aztec empire. So this is nothing new. Joseph Stalin was, is a very interesting case study. And I think that the lack of understanding about Soviet Russia has been one of the greatest injustices that we have done to our nation's children. It really is. Because if you look at the Soviet Union and Joseph Stalin... Very few people know that he actually studied in seminary. That Joseph Stalin was a top-tier student to become a pastor. So Joseph Stalin actually never admitted that he was an atheist. He didn't. He did admit he was at war with God, though. It's very, it's, it, that's not, you want to go spend a couple hours wrestling with something. Go think about that. At war with God? What does that even mean? And that's exactly what his entire existence and his whole pathological campaign of destruction was in the Soviet Union. Same could be said for Mao Zedong. I mean, he only killed 55 million people, right? As Stalin said, one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic. Mao Zedong, still, we're still feeling the terror of the Chinese Communist Party to this day through the Cultural Revolution, had the self-enforced little red book that if you did not have the little red book and if you did not have the incantations of Mao Zedong, you could be put in prison and killed. So here's why I don't like some of these kind of analogies and some of these kind of the moralizing that we do. People say never again. We're never going to let that happen again. Okay, there's a million Muslims in concentration camps in China right now. What are you doing about it right now? So never again is a lie. We're letting it happen right now. There's a million Muslims that, by the way, most of the Islamic countries aren't even talking about. That just kind of shows what their priorities are. However, that bothers me because they're children of God and they're in a concentration camp and I don't like when the innocent are being preyed on. So right now there's one million Muslims in concentration camps. They're called Uyghur Muslims. You can look it up yourself. I believe it's spelled U-I-H-G-Y-R. At least some spelling of that will autocorrect it in the search engine you use, which hopefully is not Google. And because they're the ones that are building the entire empire for this to be possible, by the way. They're the, our own children that we educate in our schools go work for Google to go build the 21st century concentration camps for China. They just enlist our own tech companies to be able to do that. And so right now there's a million Muslims in concentration camps. And I just want to keep saying that because right now we have LeBron James saying how awful of a country that we are 
He's the one that's taking the knee, but he says that China's a pretty awesome place and refuses to say one bad thing against the Chinese Communist Party. And so that should enrage every single person that sees what's happening in our country right now. Because guess what? America has absolutely made mistakes, but America is not a mistake. We are the least racist, multiracial country in the history of the world. We are the most generous. We are the most benevolent, the most creative, the most giving of opportunity, the most forgiving, the most likely to have a comeback story. Do you know what the most striking thing was when I traveled to France, I traveled to Belgium, I traveled all across um, the entire European Union, not Belgium, when I traveled to Switzerland, I traveled to Germany, is what they said, the one thing that made America different, and this is what is so interesting, and again, the activist media, they're just so boring lately, is that the Europeans that are entrepreneurs, they said, one of the major cultural differences between Europe and America is how forgiving of failure America is. I said, you know why? Because we're a Christian nation, that's why. It, and it's a really interesting thing, right? Because we love a good comeback story in this country, right? And that's, a, that's the Christian ethic is you're going to come to some prominence. You're going to get broken down, surrender yourself, and maybe, maybe through Jesus Christ you'll be able to build yourself up back again. And just look at some of the great comeback stories. General Douglas MacArthur, General Patton. I mean, those guys were just thrown out. To, and they said, General Douglas MacArthur famously said, I will return, I will be back. That was the Terminator before the Terminator. He went to Korea <laughs> and won the Korean War. And I'll finish with this by saying, Tiger Woods, all these stories are redemption. And we lose this beautiful kind of cultural landscape where we just say nothing but the negatives and focusing on the negatives. But my goodness, have we been given a gift, everybody, by living in this country. And it is such a shame what we are doing to our children and teaching them ingratitude and bitterness. We are going to look back at this and say, what were we doing? We had it so good. We had it yeah. so free. We had liberty. And I hope we'll never say we lost it. It's on us. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Um, I have a couple things. Here's, here's the YouTube question that came in. I'm going to rephrase it. It's regarding uh, vaccines. And I'm going to phrase it with this since you mentioned China. So China implemented a social credit system some years ago. And it's very oppressive to the people. If you're not familiar with the social credit system, basically if you speak well of the Chinese government, then you're blessed. Your kids can go to certain schools. Exactly right. You can live in certain neighborhoods, things like that. If you speak out against the authorities in China, then you are going to be punished. You can be locked into your community and never be able to leave that community and on down that list. And I said years ago, because of what the Bible says, every dictator in the world is going to want the Chinese social credit system. Yes. And when I look at the way things will play out eventually in the, whenever the last days are, um, and then I think of the vaccines. And, and I have, I'm concerned uh, when I hear of the, the vaccine. I'm concerned about uh, the, the, where vaccines come from with the Board of Babies. That's correct. Uh, and then also, now we're hearing mandatory vaccine in order to get back to yeah. whatever. Yeah, go I want to emphasize the first point because I saw some people look confused. Um, vaccines are made through aborted fetuses, babies, just so you understand. It, it, is, it is how vaccines are made. The antibodies that are injected into your children through vaccines are made possible by the abortion industry. The million abortions a year. So I just, just so you understand what that is. And you can look it up yourself. You can fact check it. So that's something that is quite horrific. They don't teach our children that. And it's something that um, is an important nuance. So, so look, I'm not, I'm not going um, to... I'll, I'll leave the eschatology to you. ...campaign right now to try to get people mandate, mandatory compliance towards a vaccine. And it's pathological how much they want this. In fact, just so you understand where this is going, and it must be the mandated part of this absolutely must be fought at every single turn, is that they are going to be having, you can't get certain jobs, certain corporations are going to require it, 
school systems, and eventually states are going to require this. And so this, this is coming. It absolutely is. And in fact, they're admitting it. I mean, this is, this is coming from the very top levels of our government that they want to have the mandated um, vaccine for individuals, all, for, for young children, for everyone across the country. And just some, just some other, it, it, even, the, even the best flu vaccine we have is only 10 to 15% effective, right? So the, in, in any ways, it might be a placebo, but, I, and I, but I, I'm, I'm very much, um, I, I share the government overreach concerns so greatly because if, if we allow that to happen, which we're already seeing, I think a lot of different ways, there's social conditioning going on right mm-hmm. now to just do what you're told, obey, take a knee, all these sorts of things. And I'm going to be very honest with you, and this church being you know, the outlier of this, I've been, I've been saddened because I thought that we embraced liberty a lot more in this country than we really did. I'm going to be honest. And maybe it's, maybe it's just a moment in time, maybe we'll wake up, but man, I mean, the fact yeah. that we have allowed so much to be shut down for so long at such a great cost, under such fear and such mass misinformation after misinformation. And I'm not saying the virus is not a real thing. I've lost a dear mentor and friend to the virus. There's real tragedy and real pain. However, the singular analysis at just that one thing as the only thing that we must focus on, as if we do not have a country of 345 million diverse people demographically and otherwise, where we have just tried to kill a mouse with a tomahawk missile in the middle of a neighborhood, and there's a lot of casualties around us, where more kids committed suicide in the state of California than died of the Chinese coronavirus. That should get everyone great concern. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have, one, I have one more question. I want to wind things down. We've been going, wow, over an hour and a half. This is, I literally talk is, for a living. I did three is, services this morning. Uh, did a podcast before this, so we're having fun. And then you can take pictures with people afterwards. I don't know if you knew that. So, so there you go. So, so um, okay, recently you had a podcast regarding uh, the peace agreement yes. uh, with the UAE and Israel. We have an Israeli flag back here. I teach on Bible prophecy. So Israel really is the center when you start looking at the prophetic word. But with that, your thoughts, your podcast on the UAE deal in Israel. No, I mean, it, it's incredibly uh, historic. It's beyond historic. It's transformational. I mean, you want, if, if the president just did this deal between the UAE and Israel, it would be considered an incredible presidency. I mean, it's just so... To have the UAE, which was a funder and a supporter of the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement of Israel, to now say they're going to normalize ties and allow flights and allow trade is incredible. It goes to show President Trump's master hand. It's like a master class in negotiation, right? Which is... Moving the embassy, I don't care what people think, recognize the Golan Heights, we hold the power in this region, and guess what, we're going to negotiate what is good, and all of a sudden all these countries are like, oh, America's back, like, we're no longer going to be able to be micro-tyrants, like, that's basically what ended up happening, and you see it, it's absolutely incredible. Um, but, look, Isra- the fight for Israel is very interesting, because the thing that Israel and the United States have in common, it's the only two countries ever founded that were founded specifically in the Judeo-Christian ethic and the Judeo-Christian morality, that's why they're so hated. Right? And so Israel being a country of only 7 million people, with half the world's Jews, where all three monotheistic religions are represented in the Knesset, where you have freedom of religion, freedom of expression, you have Christianity, Judaism, and Islam that is all allowed to freely express their beliefs. That is the country that is the focus of 1 billion Arab Muslims all across the region. It's really interesting, why does Iran hate Israel more than China? That should be a very serious question for you. Which country has a million Muslims in concentration camps again? And that just goes to show this is a diabolical campaign. To, it is anti-Semitism through and through. And to also, and this is a, bit, this is a less talked about truth, 
They want to archaeologically destroy the Middle East. Did you know that there's never been an archaeological discovery that has con contradicted the Bible? The more we dig, the more we discover, the more we confirm. They want to be able to destroy Israel because then they can destroy the archaeological truth that we find, whether it be in the city of David, whether it be in Capernaum, all across Judea and Samaria. The more that the Arabs allow us to actually dig in that region, the more we're able to confirm the authenticity and the historical truth of the Bible. So the fight for Israel is a fight for all things that are good and right in the world, and I'm happy to stand uh, next to Israel. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask you this. One final exhortation. What should we do? Everybody here, everybody watching yeah. online. So can I give one shameless plug? Is that okay? Just one. Please do. Um, so I'm in a constant battle with the New York Times on the podcast charts. I have a free of charge podcast that I do twice every weekday and once on the weekend. This conversation will be aired on the podcast probably next weekend. So you guys could really bless us on our Charlie Kirk Show team by doing something free of charge that takes 15 seconds. You take out your smartphone. Uh, if it's an Apple phone, you have a podcast app in there already download, downloaded. You type in Charlie Kirk Show and you just hit that very big subscribe button. It might seem like a little thing. But if everyone in this room did that, we would beat the New York Times by tomorrow morning, which is pretty much a moral thing to do, I think. So, um, so that, that, I just had to give a shameless plug, please. Um, and if you have no idea how to do that, there's plenty of eight and nine-year-olds around here that can show you exactly how to do that. So, and he, so if I can give some calls to action. Please do. Pray for our nation. It's so incredibly important. But let's get more specific than that. And if Pastor Rob McCoy is here, I don't know if Rob is here. He was going to be here. Hi, Rob. Rob. How you doing? He's a, by hey. the way, Rob is a hero. Rob should get up here. You guys should give a standing ovation for Rob McCoy. So, great to see you. I'm going to give you... I'm going to let both of you guys talk for just a minute. Okay. I want to introduce Rob. So Rob and Rob's I... Rob's my pastor. I, he's your pastor. Yes. You live in Arizona. Rob, has, his church is up in Ventura County. Yeah. Um, we met in Israel. Rob introduced himself to me, which I found... I think of, well, how do you know me? I know who you are. What are you, what are you doing? But we were at Masada. We were having lunch. Yeah. And uh, that was great meeting you there. Uh, but it's great having you here tonight. So Rob is the one who I told you about a few Sundays back. And I said, look, he's got jail time threats. Uh, the uh, Ventura County is after him. I told you all those things. So this is Pastor Rob McCoy. He's been my hero, standing up and pressing forward. And I, I want to have you guys talk for just a couple seconds. But you got to move into the camera. Okay. okay. All right, all right. And thank you for showing up. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I was saying, and Pastor, uh, Pastor Rob McCoy is my pastor, and I'm honored to call him my pastor because he fights for what is right and what is good, keeps his churches open. But I, I stole something from Rob, and Rob, you can say it better than I can. First Timothy, pray for your leaders by name. Talk about that. Yeah, First Timothy says, pray for kings and those in authority that we would live quiet, peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. And I, I traveled the country with an organization called American Renewal Project, spoken to 15,000 pastors across the country. And I, and I say, you all agree that's a pastoral epistle Paul's writing to Timothy, and they say yes, that's the word of God, yes. And, and I say, look, 
Based on that scripture, can you name your five school board members and your five city council members by name and the issues they're dealing with that allow your community to live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence? And you can hear a pin drop. And, you know, when, it's, when it says drain the swamp, Washington geographically is a swamp, Sacramento geographically is a swamp, but figuratively, they're, they're also where the water ends up. If you want to change the swamp, you've got to go to the source. The source is local. You want to light a thousand fires, dominate your school board and dominate your city council. You should be at every meeting. You should hold them accountable. You should make sure that you have godly people representing your community, walk precincts for them, host coffees for them, contribute to their campaigns. In an election, my wife and I contribute 10% of our, uh, our income, not just to the church, but 10% to any candidate running locally. This is by consent of the governed. And your apathy is not going to win the election. And your visceral email that you send to your friend doesn't win an election. You've got to do work. This is a constitutional republic, and it's participatory. And so that's what you wanted me to say? That's exactly what Amen. I wanted to say. And, and I'll, I'll reinforce it by we as Christians and conservatives actually have to think smaller to think bigger, which is to think locally. Yep. People say, how do I change the world? How are your neighbors voting? Do they know how you stand on the issues? Have you looked at them in the eye and explained to them? See, we're very quick to talk to strangers, slow to talk to friends. Very interesting. The psychological truth to that, because we think that our friends are going to disconnect us, but actually you have the most likelihood of convincing a friend because you have that common bond. And so own your neighborhood. Talk to them all about the necessary need of running for school board, supporting school board members, and yes, voting for state, local, and federal candidates that are in alignment with the worldview that you all hold. So that's one takeaway. The second way is this. So there are a couple moonshots that we need as a movement. I say this every time I speak at a church. I say it on my podcast at least twice a week. We have to double the homeschooling population in the next five years in this yes. country. It's that simple. We have to double the homeschooling population. So what does that mean? All, all of you are like, oh, my kids are growing up. The sale has passed. No, actually, there are homeschool co-ops that need you to maybe pinch it as a master carpenter to teach a class, as a history class. Do you have a passion for something? If, if, if you want to come up to me and hand me a piece of paper that you have written about some topic, which happens a lot, I'm sure there's somebody out there, go take that passion and go find a homeschooling co-op that needs to hear from you about a specific piece of history that you know really well. That we have to be, get serious about the church getting involved in the home. This is what's so amazing is I have homeschooling mothers saying, I can't do it anymore. I can't support my family. I can't raise my kids. They gotta go to public school. And I say, who's your, who's your, what church do you go to? Because they should be the one that's supporting that entire local homeschooling community. I know you guys do a phenomenal job of that here. And then the third thing that I really wanna reinforce and kind of the call to action that we have to get very serious about is in all communities in America, we have to cut fatherlessness in half in the next 10 years. We have to. We have to cut fatherlessness in half, especially in the black community. It's two-pronged. Number one, stop subsidizing from the government level. And any man who calls himself a man that does the drive-by father thing is a coward and should be condemned and challenged by other godly men to get back in that relationship and raise those children. Yeah. The, the, the yeah. crisis that's happening with fatherlessness in this country is a real thing. Yeah. And so... By the way, this is by no means a, a condemnation of single mothers. They are heroes. They're absolute heroes, but they have too much of financial, educational, and societal burden. And you want to take all racial lines away. A white kid raised by a single mom is less likely to succeed than a black kid raised by a, a mother and a father, by a nuclear family. Outside of racial lines, it is two-parent privilege. In Illinois, 70% of rapists, murderers, and criminals in the Illinois correctional system. They have one thing in common. It's not their race. It's not their color. It's not their creed. They did not have a father in the home. It is the number one predictor for crime, 
for homelessness, for drug usage. It is the lack of fathers in this society. It's because we have hyper-feminized our culture. We have not built up good men. But also, stop, let's, not, let's just be honest, men in this country have to start being real men, shouldering a burden, and stop doing this drive-by father thing that we have allowed to happen for far too long. So those are the big Amen. takeaways. Homeschooling, explosion, and fatherlessness cut in half. Those two things could help save our republic, Amen. and it's, those things are biblical truths. Amen. Thank Mike you Rob. very much. It's great. Okay. Thank you, Rob. This is great. And I would say um, vote. Would you say... Of course. Who would well, you... Go ahead. I mean, look. <laughs> I mean, I know what you're going to say. I, I throw out these questions because it's, it's good. I mean, <laughs> you go first and then I'll finish. 15,280,000 self-professing evangelical Christians in California. Half of them are not registered to vote. Of the half that are registered to vote, only half of those vote in a presidential election. 12% in a non-presidential election. We're, we're going to get shellacked unless we start awakening to our responsibility. And the church has been woefully absent. I'll leave you with this last thought. Headwaters of the Jordan, Caesarea Philippi. Jesus takes his disciples up there, cacophony of noise with all the gods and goddesses that they built temples to. He turns to his disciples. He says, who do men say that I am? They say, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say, he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? Peter chimes in. He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And upon this rock I will build my... No. Ecclesia. You missed that part of my speech. I know. <laughs> Stole Good. it from him. But the idea is the public square. So we have to engage. And, and Calvary chapels are pre-trib, pre-millennial, and, and we, we believe in the rapture. Great. And I had one of the pastors who was my mentor who's heading up quite a large portion of it, CCA. He said, I kind of look at it like the house is on fire and we got to get the kids out. And I responded and I said, look, we, we, Calvary Chapel's been doing this for 52 years. Did you cover this? No. Calvary Chapel's been doing this for 52 years. We started in 1968 with Chuck Smith. He broke away from the Four Square Church. 1968, Bobby Kennedy was shot. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. Mili Massacre, Ted Offensive. Following year, you'd have the Kent State shooting. All the kids were burned out, and these hippies were awash on the shores of California, and they checked into Eastern religions and drugs. He and Kay started ministering to them and avoided politics. They taught the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, 10,000 percent growth, 1,800 Calvary chapels around the world, and that's conversion growth, not transfer growth. We have largest churches in California, south of Van Nuys, 350 Calvary chapels. But we avoided politics. 68, Reagan was governor. We had the fifth largest GDP. It was the state of the future. Here we are in 2020, 52 years of this, avoiding politics, churches everywhere. We no longer have the fifth largest GDP. We have the sixth, maybe seventh. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. We lead the nation in debt, poverty, and homelessness. We're the authors of no-fault divorce, transgender bathroom bills, and the most secular, uh, secular progressive sex ed curriculum. It's vile. You can't even show it in church. But here's the kicker. We've aborted more children in the state of California than the entire population of Canada. That's what happens when you avoid the ecclesia, the public square. Right. Now, if you want to tell me that the house is on fire and we're going to get the kids out, that's great for evangelism. Every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability. But we don't know the day or the hour. We can look at the, the signs, but never lose sight of this. Your eschatology is not justification for your apathy. Otherwise, you might as well look at Greta Thunberg because she has a better out 
outcome for the world and just tell your kids, look, we're just polishing brass on the Titanic. What I would say is, if the house is on fire, get the kids out. Then put the fire out and rebuild the house. My point is, I am pre-trip, pre-millennial. But Jesus said, occupy until I come. We have to start investing in generations to come and step back into the public square. That's it. Amen. Thank you very much, Rob. Thank you, Thank you, guys. So, just so, amen. Thank you. Thank you. It's fantastic. I think you get to do pictures. Good luck. Thank you, guys. So, you might have noticed up here, there's a picture of Petra back here. Petra, we are going to Petra. You, and uh, if you want to go to Israel with us, I'm going, Don Stewart is going, Bob Probert. Maybe I can get Rob to go too. Can I get an invitation? Uh, Don Dix is going to have an invitation. And with that, Don, you want to close us out? I do. Thank you so much. Was that awesome? Yeah. All right. We're going to continue now for uh, just about 30 seconds to give you some uh, takeaways and get you primed for getting out and getting the books and getting your pictures with Charlie. So the first thing that I need you to do is take out your phones, okay? Because we're going to take all that call to action and boil it down to one simple thing right now. You guys ready to reclaim your political power and put that Marxist, communist, socialist stuff back on the trash heap of history? Seriously, are you ready? All right, get your phones out. Because we need, like Charles, love that, the bodyguard of Western civilization. We need to have his back. The police can't do it all. We're seeing that happen. They need our help. Politicians can't do, our help, do it all. We need to have their backs. But we also, at the same time, need to hold them accountable. So I want you to get ready to text. Put this number into your text, all right? 844. You're going to text to 844. 796-2433. Do that one more time for you. 844-796-2433 and text the word sign up to that number. Sign up. What you're going to connect with is an opportunity to learn how to take your political power back and exert it and influence it in your community. And like Charlie said, in your neighborhood. Because we need to become, we need to learn how to influence. Politics is influence. We need to learn how to influence our elected leaders and our neighbors. Thanks for listening and being a part of this week's podcast. Before you go, I'd like to invite you to visit our website, hopeforourtimes.com, and check out the many resources we have to offer. On our website, we have books, DVDs, and daily news articles that will always keep you up to date on the times we're living in. If you'd like to see the video version of this week's podcast, you can find us at Hope For Our Times on YouTube. God bless, and we'll talk to you next time.